0: Uh, Good morning. Glad you're here on this last Sunday of the year of our Lord, 2012. This morning, uh, our text is a wonderful text. It's Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 8 through chapter 5, verse 1. It's quite a long passage. So if you have your Bibles, if you would please turn with me to that text. Galatians, beginning in chapter 4, verse 8. This is God's holy inspired word for us today, so so let's pay pay heed to it. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus." My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Father, we we pray for your help in understanding this difficult passage this morning. We look at this text before us and, and we recognize that That human history is headed to a division into two camps, two wives, two mothers, two sons, two covenants, two mountains, two cities. One way leads to slavery, the other to freedom. And I pray that by your spirit, you would make us wise to ever choose freedom in Christ over slavery in the law. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think it was about ten, about 10 years ago, you all were gracious enough to give me two weeks vacation, and uh, Caroline and I uh, took a cruise uh, through the inland passage uh, uh, of Alaska. It's a great trip. You know, if you haven't done it, uh, I would highly encourage you to do that. You know, one of the highlights of the trip for both of us was whale watching. You know, we were in a small cruise ship so we could get up close and personal. Uh, we didn't have to keep to a strict itinerary so we could just sort of follow these magnificent creatures around and enjoy watching them. They're, they're magnificent. They're an inspiration with their strength, with their, with their majesty, and their freedom. You know, they would often just swim right up and breach right next to, uh, to the ship. It was wonderful. But tragically, with their immense size, they often get trapped when they get too close to shore. For beach whales, the strength and freedom they had in the open water is gone. They become enslaved by a, by a beach or a, or a sandbar. It's, it's not a very pretty sight. You know, we've all seen pictures of... Uh, People trying to rescue beached whales. You know, some try to keep them wet while others try to get them free from the sandbar that would, that would claim that uh, would cause their certain death if something wasn't done to help them. And often the rescue works and whales swim off to deeper water to once again enjoy their freedom. It's very interesting. For some reason, one or two whales invariably turn around after they've been rescued and they head right back for the sandbar and they get beached again. Why do they do that? You know, why do some whales swim away to freedom and then return to the sandbar and are again enslaved? You know, the truth is, nobody knows for sure Why whales do that. But they do. Well, sometimes Christians do that too. Those in Galatia were doing it. And Paul's perplexed about it. He's a little confused. And he asks himself, why do they do that? You know, beginning in verse 8, Paul says that the Galatians had been living in spiritual bondage to false gods. He says, to the elementary principles of the world. But by God's grace, he visited the region. And he told them about salvation in Christ. And people responded to God's gospel of grace. They grew in their faith. They developed a very close relationship with Paul. They loved him. He loved them. But Paul then went away. And now after receiving their freedom in Christ, many of these same people took a turn back to bondage, this time bondage to Jewish law. Apparently some Jews from Jerusalem, they're called Judaizers, had arrived in Galatia and claimed to be Christians, and they were telling these people that it wasn't enough just to believe in Christ to be saved. He said they had to to get circumcised. They had to keep the Jewish law. They had to observe all the old Jewish feasts and festivals. And, and many of them were, were buying into this false gospel. And Paul is perplexed. Why would they do that? Why would they give up their freedom in Christ and go back to being slaves again? Doesn't make any sense to him. He starts to believe that all his labors among them were in vain. His close relationship with these people had come unraveled because of this. Their joy was lost. And Paul pleads with them here not to go back again into spiritual bondage. Now, up to this point in the letter, Paul had been pretty tough on these Galatians. He'd been arguing much like a lawyer who comes into the courtroom, he simply defends his case without any real concern for people. Or like a theologian who's amassing all sorts of of scriptural knowledge to prove his theological point. So far, his argument has been impersonal. It's been all head and no heart. But with chapter 4, verse 12, everything changes. Now he becomes very tender, becomes very personal. He's no longer Paul the Apostle, the theologian, the defender of the faith. Here we're hearing Paul the pastor, the lover of souls. He calls them his brothers in verse 12. In verse 19, he refers to them as his children. And he even goes on in verse 19 to liken himself to their mother who's in labor over them until Christ is formed in them. So, no deep theology here. Paul's pretty much done with that at this point in the letter. Now he's talking to friends who've wrecked their lives by a foolish decision, and he is afraid for them. He pleads with them, begging them not to do this, not to go back. He says he, he cares too much for them to just sit by and see them destroy themselves. He, he begs them to become like him with full freedom in Christ. He says that he became like them. He became a Gentile to, to make them like him, also having freedom in Christ. Paul also reminds them of the relationship that they previously had. In the past, they would have done anything for him. It says here that they took him in when he was sick. They did him no wrong. They didn't scorn or despise him. They treated him as if he were Christ Jesus himself. He testifies that they loved him so much that they would have torn out their eyes and given them to him. But those who turned back into bondage no longer felt close to Paul. They now saw him as an enemy. They could not handle the truth of the gospel. And Paul's afraid for them. You know, he asks, what's happened to you? You know, what's happened to your joy? Where's that, where's that spring in your step? Where's that song in your heart? You, you made this great exchange trading your bondage for freedom. How can you now go back into bondage, into spiritual slavery? Paul asks these questions. He's perplexed. And can't we ask the same questions today? How can we understand it when someone who responds to God, who gives evidence of repentance and faith, then is baptized as a testimony to that faith, and then turns back. You know, how, how are we to understand that? It's hard. It's perplexing. You know, Paul knew the weight of ministry. He was anguished over his people who were lost. He was anguished for those he ministered to and who were now shipwrecked in their faith. We know that same anguish as well, don't we? We know how Paul felt. You know, you as parents, some of you have felt that with your own children. Carole and I know that anguish with a wayward granddaughter. She's breaking our hearts. You know, pastors and elders... Feel the pain amidst the flock that God has given them to care for. When they see one go astray, go back into slavery. You know, you've seen pastors and elders of this very church shed tears of grief and anguish and pain when they have to discipline one of their own who has gone back. Don't ask me to explain why some people do that. I don't know why. But I do know that part of being a Christian leader or a parent is to know anguish. It happens whenever we see someone who knows the joy and freedom in Christ turn back to spiritual slavery. It breaks your heart. Tears you up. You know, I I think it's wrong. It's definitely wrong to be bitter about this. But, dear ones, it's never wrong. To be anguished over spiritual casualties. So Paul says a lot here in these opening verses about the relationship which should exist between a congregation and its spiritual leaders. He teaches that our attitude toward them should be determined not by their spiritual or by their personal appearance, not by their theological whims, but by their hearts, by their loyalty to the gospel of Christ, by their faithfulness to the message of the apostles, and not by anything else. And what should their attitude be toward us? You know, that great Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, once said, a congregation will forgive a pastor of almost anything if they know for certain that He loves them. John Calvin wrote, If ministers wish to do any good, let them labor to form Christ, not to form themselves in their hearts. You know, that's what Paul says here in verse 19. He wanted nothing more than that Christ would be formed in these dear people whom He loved. That's his only motive. He's not interested in padding his resume like the Judaizers were. He wasn't concerned with building up his reputation like they were. That's what verses 17 and 18 are all about. No, Paul's not into that. You know, as one of your former pastors used to say, he's a one trick pony. He only wanted Christ to be fully formed in these people whom he loved. Dear ones, that is Paul's message to us too. You know, a church needs people who, in listening to their pastor, listen for the message of Christ. And a church needs a pastor and elders who, in laboring among the people, look for the image of Christ being formed in them. Well, let's, let's move on. Starting with verse 21, Paul reviews a bit of Old Testament history, and he says that a thoughtful review of this history will bring us to the same conclusion that if you're free in Christ, you simply cannot go back to living under the law. That only leads again to slavery. Slavery. But he uses a different type of argument here than he's ever used before. He uses an allegory. It's not so much an argument, I think, as it is an illustration, as it is an example of the argument that he's already made many times before about grace above law, grace over law. Let me just say a few words here about allegorical interpretation of Scripture. Scripture. You know, an allegory is a method of interpretation which says that one thing is true, but also says that underlying it is a hidden meaning, which is also true. You know, one of the greatest books ever written outside the Bible is Pilgrim's Progress. It's totally allegorical. But the use of allegory to interpret Scripture, it's been very harmful in the past. You know, the Jews in uh, Alexandria, the rabbis, uh, they really went bananas on this thing. Uh, They left a legacy to the church that we really never got over until the Reformation. They allegorized everything. You know, just a couple of examples. They said that the two denarii given by the good Samaritan to the innkeeper signified baptism and the Lord's Supper. Some of them said that the river Euphrates wasn't an actual river, but means the outflow of good manners, and on and on with such foolishness. You know, using an allegorical method to interpret the Bible invariably leads to reading into Scripture our own preconceived ideas about lots of things, about church tradition, about our cultural whims, and even our prejudices. And we shouldn't do that. It's dangerous. Instead, we should find out what the Scripture means in its context. But there is one instance when it's okay to interpret Scripture allegorically. And that's when the Apostle Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says that it's okay. And that's the case here. Why did he do it? I don't have the first clue. But here, Paul takes an actual historical event. He gives it a deeper meaning, a meaning which surely was not intended by Moses when he wrote about it. He says in verse 24 that the event in question can be interpreted allegorically. Some of your Bibles may say figuratively, but the actual word there is allegory. So, bottom line, unless Scripture tells you specifically to do it, don't do it. Now, tapping into this slavery image that Paul uses throughout this letter, he asks his beloved gospel-forgetting and beloved gospel-forsaking readers, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And playing on this word law, which I think, I think he's actually talking about the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, Paul is saying here, so you want to try to be justified, to be right with God by your good works, but don't you remember what the scriptures say so plainly about this, which brings him to this allegory. And that may be a problem, you know, if you don't remember your Old Testament history. So here's a crash course. Genesis 15 through 21 tells us that when Abraham was 75 years old and Sarah, his wife, was 65, God promised them that they would have a child. Well, time passed, and they waited. They waited a month. They waited a year. They waited two years. They waited a decade, and nothing was happening. And Sarah's biological clock had run out. So not wanting to see God embarrassed by being unable to fulfill his promise to them, what did they do? They took matters into their own hands and late in their old age, Sarah gave Abraham her slave, Hagar, who became pregnant and she gave birth to a son, Ishmael. But then years later, when Abraham was 99 and Sarah 89, God came to Abraham again. He rebuked him for his lack of faith, and again promised a son through Sarah. And a year later, Isaac was born. Now, here's the situation. Hagar and Ishmael's status was now in a precarious place. And it was made all the worse when Sarah saw Ishmael scorning Isaac, when Isaac was about three years old and Ishmael was about 17, that was when uh, Isaac was weaned. You know, you know, can't you just picture the scene? Here's Ishmael. You know, he's been the top dog all these years. He's been the heir all along, until three years ago. And then this snotty-nosed, crummy little kid moves in. And his parents give him this big party. And at the party, Ishmael's grinding on Isaac. And Sarah sees all this. And she tells Abraham to get him out of the house along with his mother and the horse they rode in on. And with God's assurance, Abraham reluctantly sends them away. You know, just as a quick aside... If you want to see the actual beginning of the current Arab-Israeli conflict, you need to look no further than Hagar's bedroom, because that's where it started. Well, that's Genesis. That's freely paraphrased. They didn't actually ride in on a horse. (laughs) But here in Galatians, Paul uses these actual historical events to set forth two covenants two ways which people take in life. One is the way of reliance upon the law, reliance upon good works, and the other is the way of reliance upon the gospel of Christ. And there's a major conflict between them, so much so that we have to be clear of the differences between them. So let's just take a quick look. The first of these ways is that of living by the law. It's a way Paul identifies here with being enslaved. He speaks here of Hagar and Ishmael, who who represent a twisted view of the covenant and a trusting in works. This covenant was made at Mount Sinai, which actually lies outside the promised land in Arabia. It represents the way of human effort of living by the law. Paul attacks the present Jerusalem, which is Judaism, the folly of legalism adding to the gospel of grace. He pleads with his readers to turn back from this path that will surely enslave them in a number of ways. And let me just quickly give you a number of ways, a couple of ways in which it will enslave them. Turning back will enslave them in terms of their standing with God leaving them no sense of certainty, no sense of security. Now, think with me for a moment of Hagar and Ishmael. What legal standing did these slaves have? None. No certainty as to where they stood or what their future might hold. No assurance that they had measured up to God's standards. They lived in constant fear of being sent away. They felt threatened. Their status in Abraham's tent was insecure, never firm. One blunder, one little misstep could and ultimately did cost them their place in the household. You see, that's the way it is with all who rely on their good works. They can never have assurance of their salvation or their standing before God because they can never be sure that they've done enough to please Him. And that's slavery. You know, some years back when I was the pastor here, I was out on an EE evangelism explosion call at the home of a lady who had uh, visited the church the week before you know, after some initial conversation, I asked her the standard EE question, have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven? And she startled me when she began to cry. And I thought, hey, this is good. <laughs> yeah. Now, what was coming was going to be a profession of her love for Christ and uh, Uh, a deep appreciation for his mercy. But that wasn't it at all. Through her tears, she said, I read my Bible and I pray for those in need. I go to church when I can. I take care of my next door neighbor whenever she needs help. Then she looked at me with the saddest expression. And she said, and I hope that's enough. Well, dear ones, it's not enough. Hers were tears of bondage, not joy. Tears of fear, not freedom. Which is where living by the law ultimately will leave you in your standing with God. With no certainty. But living by the law not only enslaves us with God... It also enslaves us in our attitudes towards ourselves. You know, Paul says in verse 23a that the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. Now, at one level, Paul's simply saying that Ishmael's birth wasn't spectacular, wasn't extraordinary, and it came about through natural procreation. His was a natural birth. But when Paul speaks of something being of the flesh... He's also referring to a self-dependence, a self-reliance that refuses to make room for God. Now, the enslavement of going by the flesh, it can come through either of two ways. It can come through despair. If living up to standards are all you have and you know you can't live up to them, or it can come through pride if you've deluded yourself into believing that you've lived up to the standards, either way, despair or pride, either way, you are locked into a vicious cycle of enslavement. And the personal enslavement with God and with ourselves through living by the law, it also has devastating effects on our relationship with other people. You know, we've seen that this perversion of the gospel these Galatian Christians had given into had led to a compromised relationship with Paul. It led to a withdrawal from him, to a wall uh, between him and these people. They now saw him as their enemy. They couldn't handle the truth of the gospel. You know, in, uh, in thinking of our damaged view of ourselves before God, that then leads to this damage around us. I'm I'm always reminded of an image C.S. Lewis once spoke of. In his book, Mere Christianity, if you've read it, you might recall, he speaks of a fleet of ships sailing across the ocean on a foggy night. They can't see. Their sonars aren't working. The steering mechanisms on the ships aren't working. And they begin to run into each other causing breaches in the halls. Damaged people doing damage to each other because of a damaged view of God and a damaged view of themselves. It's quite an image. One that fits well into what we see here. So here's the question. Does that sound like you? You know, there's something here for all of us. If you're living by the law, convinced your sin, if anything, is just a little bitty problem, and you need just a little bitty help to deal with it, this is where you are. This is where you are, and this is where you're going. You're heading back to the sandbar. Now, this perspective is why the lives of the people around you are in such a mess, and yours too, and mine too. Do you think God accepts you? Do you believe He loves you? Why do you believe that? You know, if your answer is God loves me and accepts me because you're a child of the slave. If you tag any reason to the answer outside of God loves me and accepts me because of His grace and mercy... You're in bondage. You're living by the law. And that takes me to the other way, which is the freedom of the gospel, a way that cannot coexist with the way of the law. And here Paul speaks of Sarah and Isaac, of the covenant rightly understood, of the Jerusalem above. Rooted in being right with God by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. That way sets us free first in our standing before God. It gives us the greatest certainty. You know, think with me of Sarah and Isaac. Their place in Abraham's tent was secure. They belonged. They were the objects of promise. They would never be cast away, secure as to where they stood, secure as to what would be, just as any who rely on Jesus will never be cast away by God, for they're his adopted children to whom the inheritance of eternal life belongs by right. You know, the gospel of John chapter one, verses 12 and 13 says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. You know, someone did a recent uh, study of little children playing on a playground. You know, with, um, with no fence around the perimeter of the playground, very interesting, the children were very tentative. They huddled close together near the center of the playground. But when a fence was put up, they felt free to roam everywhere. Someone had staked out where they were and where they were to be. Well, you know, moving from the study to just experience... You've felt that, or at least you've seen it. Little children just tend to be more confident, more daring, more assured when their parents are around. Well, here's the thing our Father is around, and we can rest confidently and assured in His love. And that takes us to the freedom that comes by the gospel and our attitude, not just towards God, but towards ourselves. Again, verse 23, But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. There's a clear contrast here. Born according to the flesh and born through promise. Isaac, born not in an ordinary way, but supernaturally by the promise of God. Just the opposite of what we said before. Born through promise, which leads to a life of Christ-dependence, not self-dependence. Of Christ-reliance, not self-reliance. And of Christ-righteousness, not self-righteousness. And that lifts us out of despair. We are freed from the fear of never being able to measure up. And any temptation to pride is cast out because our hope is set fully in what Christ has done not what we've done. And then this freedom in the gospel finally tears down the wall between us and others in whom we relate. It humbles us. Humble people just tend to get along with each other. You know, I mentioned earlier about the EE call that I went out on and talked with that woman who I'm convinced was still in bondage to to the law. Well, I want you to compare that attitude with this one. A couple of weeks ago, I got an email from a friend. He's an Army colonel. He's on the permanent faculty at West Point. He has cancer. It's in his bones. It's not a good thing. He's being getting some good treatment for it, Sloan Kettering in New York City. But it's probably going to get him sooner rather than later, just like it got his dad, who was also a dear friend of mine. This man, Eric Kale, is his name. He's the same age as one of my sons. He's a Christian. He's fighting his cancer, and his attitude toward his condition absolutely humbles me. He gave us a quick update on his status. He, he asked us to pray uh, for some things. He quoted 1 Timothy 1.7. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love and of self-discipline. And then he concluded this way by saying this. He said, we, he and his wife Gigi, he says, We continue to live each day thankful for God's many blessings, which far exceed what we deserve. Moving forward in confidence that God loves us and has a plan for us. He knew the number of our days before we were born. And to live a single one of them consumed with fear, worry, or doubt is unacceptable. Let's all live each day in such a way that everyone would know what we really are thankful for. Dear ones, that is freedom. That's living free. That's living as a son and not as an orphan. That's living with full freedom under the gospel and not living in slavery under the law. That's freedom that rests not upon a slavish obedience to the letter of the law, but upon the finished work of Christ embraced by faith alone. Dear ones, let God's Word keep telling you who you are in Christ and never, ever Contemplate returning to your old way of life. You know, that old slave trader, John Newton, understood that admonition very well. He had over the mantelpiece of his study the verse Deuteronomy 15, 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Dear ones, you have been redeemed. Remember that. Live in in the freedom of that. You know, I was reminded this week as I studied this passage, I don't know why it came to me, but it did. I was reminded of that old-time feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. That feud, most of you know, was the stuff of legend. Each clan living on opposite sides of a river selling moonshine, involved in guerrilla activity during the Civil War. But for nearly 20 years, that part of West Virginia and Kentucky witnessed a relentless series of kidnappings, betrayals, arson, murder. And until the authorities intervened and a truce was called, it seemed the two sides simply could not coexist, the only hope being that they, they would go their separate ways. Well, I think the differences there and here are that stark. And that brings me to this final question. I know it's usually phrased, who's your daddy? But here I have to ask, who's your mother? Hence the title of this sermon. Are you a child of the slave woman or the free woman? Do you know merely the birth according to the flesh, relying and depending on yourself? Or have you become a child born through promise, relying and rejoicing utterly in the freedom of the gospel? Which group are you in? Who's your mother? So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Who's your mother? You know, my prayer for us all as we end this year of 2012 is that we would grow in our appreciation for what that truly means and that it would take deep root and bear great fruit in our lives in 2013. May God make it so in every heart. Amen and amen.